Father, we thank you so much for blessing us. We thank you for the riches of your grace. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus. As we head into our study tonight, we've been off for a couple of weeks and through the holidays it's been kind of scattered. Lord, I pray that you would draw us back together and back into your word and back into understanding. Bring to mind, Father, all the things you've already taught us and continue to build on these things in our hearts, Lord. And as we consider the front edge of the tribulation period tonight, may we do so with uh, soberness, Father, as well as uh, a conviction to share the name of Jesus and to get your gospel message out to as many people as possible that they might avoid this time that we're going to begin studying. Father, thank you for loving us. I, I pray that you'll keep my, uh, my mind fresh and hold the jet lag, lag off for a couple more hours and help us to just um, have an enjoyable and powerful time together tonight in your word. Again, thank you for Jesus. It's because of him we meet together. It's by his grace that we stand and that we're able to even come before you. So thank you, thank you, Lord, for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to give you a quick review, get you back on the page where we're at, get, get us back up to chapter 6. Uh, six points here, if you want to jot these down, six points of the book of Revelation in review, getting us up to where we are right now. Point number one, we, we saw there are three parts in that outline, that divine outline that's found in Revelation 119, where John is told to write the things which you have seen, and then write the things which are, and then write the things which will take place after these things. So in that first part, the things which you have seen, chapter 1 is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, just a reminder, Ricky keep telling us every week that chapter 1 is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because the whole book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Never forget that. As we study prophecy, this isn't just about prophecy, this is about Jesus. Prophecy is meaningless and useless unless it points us to the person of Jesus Christ and deepens our relationship with him. So we start with the revelation of Jesus himself. That's point number one in review. Point number two, in chapters two and three, we see the inspiration of Jesus to the churches. Revelation of Jesus and then the inspiration of Jesus to the churches as he wrote those seven letters to the seven churches in Asia. Not only seven churches in Asia, but remember seven epochs of church history across the last 2,000 years. And we studied those things, went through that a little bit earlier in the fall, October and November. Number three, in chapter 4, there's the invitation of heaven. The invitation of heaven. So the revelation of Jesus, the inspiration of Jesus, and now in chapter 4, the invitation of heaven where Jesus says, come up here to John, and literally raptures John, catches him up. And we looked at that. We talked about the rapture itself, the rapture of the church, and how it's connected, how John, being caught up to heaven for this miraculous, amazing vision, he's a picture of the church going up. By the way, before we're done tonight, we're going to take a hard look at another position, and we're going to see in chapter 6 how that position is incorrect. Let me give you one more little commercial announcement. Next Sunday morning... We're going to answer the question, what happened in A.D. 70, and why does it matter today? Why is it so important? I was having lunch with Frank and Sharon this afternoon, and we were talking about the fact that when it comes to Bible prophecy, there is beginning to be a very definite division in the church. Not just a difference of opinion, gang, but a division. And what that division is beginning to look like is a group that's saying we no longer need to or shouldn't support Israel. And those who are saying, yes, we should. 
And next Sunday morning we're going to talk about why does that matter? Why is that so important? Why does it keep coming up? And for those of you who think I'm just pro-Israeli or pro-Israel, as I preach and talk about these things, no, I'm not. I'm pro-Jesus, and He is pro-Israel. And we see that very clearly in the Scriptures. We'll talk about that next Sunday morning. But we have the revelation of Jesus, chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3, the inspiration of Jesus to the churches. Chapter 4, the invitation of heaven. And then chapter 5, if you remember all this, chapter 5 was the explanation of earth's condition. The explanation. Remember there was a title deed that was lost. John wept. Who is worthy? Who is able to open up that title deed? Now, I want to share something with you. And this is, uh, I think I said this morning, there will be little snippets of things that I learned and experienced in Israel probably over the next year. This is one of them. One of the sites that I was really looking forward to seeing and we got to see while we were there was Qumran. Qumran is the place where the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Now, here's the thing. And let me tell you the little story behind how it happened. The Bedouin shepherd was out in, in the desert area, in the, in the desert of Judea, and he was uh, watching his flock in this area that now we know to be Qumran, but nobody knew it at the time. He had his sheep with him, and one little sheep strayed off and disappeared down into a ridge. So the shepherd followed the sheep down to the ridge looking for him, left his other sheep behind, and lo and behold, he saw a cave down at the bottom of this ridge that his little sheep had wandered into. He, being a Bedouin shepherd, was very superstitious. The shepherds stayed out of the caves, they feared the caves, they thought demons or, or some kinds of spirits lived in caves, so they wouldn't go in the caves, and so he picked up a stone and threw it into the cave. He heard a sound that was, that was so uh, ear-piercing, it frightened him, and he took off. He ran away. The next day, the same shepherd came back, and he had with him his brother and his cousin, because he needed to check out this cave, and he wanted to find his little sheep. Well, he got back there. The sheep had wandered back out. They got him out, and they approached the cave, and when they went inside, they discovered that this stone that he had thrown, the sound was created by the stone breaking a piece of pottery. Coincidental, I might add, how he just happened to toss it into a specific cave and break a piece of pottery. When it broke open, it was filled with the first of what would be many caves discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Scrolls at Qumran. What are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Maybe you haven't heard of them or you've heard of them and you're not sure what's the big deal with those. They're not New Testament books. These were the Old Testament books, Old Testament documents that date back 2,000 years. These are the oldest documents that have been found related to the Old Testament. And it literally changed the way the Old Testament was looked at. But here's the deal. As they began to discover that there were 11 caves discovered so far, and in those 11 caves, pot, pots, they, they opened up, and within those pots were the Dead Sea Scrolls, what they call the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some of them were damaged, some of them ended up just being fragmented, but there were fragments or scrolls of every single Old Testament book except for the book of Esther. Anybody know why the book of Esther might not be included in that? The book of Esther is the only book in the Old Testament where the name of God is not mentioned a single time. So it was the only book that was not found, it was not part of it. The group that lived in this area called Qumran were the Essenes. The Essenes were a sect of Jews that you could compare to Christian uh, monastic living. They were like monks, but they were Jewish monks. They lived in this area, and basically what they spent all their time doing was copying and writing scrolls. Copying down the scriptures, uh, protecting and preserving, and they also had all kinds of uh, writings of their way of life. But here's the thing that's fascinating, and the thing to understand, especially as related to what we talked about earlier in Revelation 5, the title deed of planet Earth. 
Does anybody know what year it was that Hormran was discovered? Any guess? It's okay, the door will hold. Anyone know? Late 40s. It was literally 1947. When did Israel become a nation? 1948. The Jewish people and our tour guide at the time said, we believe that the discovery of those Old Testament documents was like God handing us the title deed of the land. Saying, you can go back into the land now, the time is right, the land is yours. And in 1948, truly, they came back into the land. The title deed of Israel. Title deed. That's how many Israelis today, Jewish people, will even look at the entirety of the Old Testament. This is our title deed. We have proof that the land is ours. Proof that the Lord gave it to us. Genesis chapter 13, verse 14 through 17, tells us the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. Abraham at that moment was standing on a mountain in Hebron and could see all of what we know of today as the promised land. God said, everywhere that you can see, look to the north, the south, the east, the west, look all over. This I give to you, Abraham. Verse 16 of Genesis 13, he says, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, he said, walk about the land through its length and its breadth, for I give it to you. I give it to you. You know, the Lord's timing does not depend on coincidence. I'm absolutely convinced that that little rock thrown by that Bedouin shepherd was purposeful. Oh, he didn't know it, but the Lord knew it. And it was God's time for the scrolls of Cormoran to be discovered. It was God's way of saying, and I agree with those Israelis who believe it today, it was God's way of saying, it's time to start coming back. I am giving the land back to you. I am bringing this thing to pass. Now, here's an interesting verse. You'll hear me quote this a lot in coming weeks. Psalm 8511. Psalm 8511. You might want to just jot that one down. Let me say something before I read it to you. The fascinating thing about the trip, and the trip we will take in a year to Israel, is we will not be going to a lot of the traditional, um, more Catholic sites, a lot of the more touristy sites, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, places like that. What I want you to see, and what blew my mind, was the archaeological finds that so strongly supports scripture. Things like a block of stone found at Caesarea that has the name Pontius Pilate on it. It's the first find. It's the only find in Israel, by the way, that has the name Pontius Pilate on it. Before that stone was discovered, the only, the only place Pontius Pilate's name appeared was in the scriptures. And so these finds are popping up all over Israel. The archaeological digs are absolutely stunning. Listen to this verse, Psalm 85:11. Truth shall spring out of the earth. Yeah. And righteousness shall look down from heaven. And truth gain is springing out of the earth all over Israel. And you've got to see it. You don't have to see it to believe it, but you've got to see it. It's awesome. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Now, the last time we met in chapter 5, we talked about the explanation, again, of earth's condition. What is that explanation? It was that seven-sealed scroll. A scroll that we looked at. It was the title deed of planet earth held in foreclosure, lost by man, released and redeemed by the only one who is worthy to open the scroll, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of of David, the lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ. 
So the explanation was chapter 5. And now we get to chapter 6 through 19, the culmination of the sin of mankind. I told you I was going to give you six things. Let's just do five. The culmination of the sin of mankind. As we head into now chapter 6 tonight, we head into the front edge of that period that is called the tribulation. Tribulation. It is the culmination of the sin of mankind. Now, as you take notes, you may want to jot this down because in these next several chapters, as we cross this span of time, we're going to see three chronological judgments. Three series, if you will, of judgments. Here they are. The first series is in chapter 6. It's called the seal judgments. Understanding these judgments, once you get these three series down, it helps you move through this this tribulation period in in the study of Revelation. Chapter 6 is the first set of judgments called the seal judgments. Chapters 8 and 9 give us the second set of judgments, which are the trumpet judgments. And chapter 16 will give us the last set of judgments called the bowl judgments. Okay, The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. One will follow the next. Something else to understand about these sets. I said seven, three sets of these judgments. Each set of judgments has seven events that happen in it. So there are seven seal judgments. There are seven trumpet judgments. And there are seven bowl judgments. God likes the number seven. It's the way he completes things. So seal judgments, there are seven. Seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments. And one other thing just to know, and I know you've got to jot this down quickly. The other thing to understand is the seventh judgment always introduces the next set of judgments. So we're going to study, we're going to look at six of the seven scroll judgments tonight. The seventh will begin in chapter seven, and that seventh judgment introduces then the trumpet judgments. The last of the trumpet judgments, the seventh trumpet judgment, will introduce the bowl judgments. And that's how it continues to flow all the way through. Now, tonight, the breaking of the seals on earth's title deed does not, understand this, does not unleash God's full judgment, wrath, and fury. This is not what is unleashed here. What's unleashed as Jesus breaks, as the Lamb breaks these seals on the title deed, and each one of these seals is broken, something is released, but it's not the fullness of God's wrath. That will come later. What is released is the inevitable consequence of human sin. The first half of the tribulation game is man experiencing the fullness of man's sin. It's all the things coming to a place, a boiling point, if you will, the culmination of 6,000 years of the sin nature, of the fact that we lost the title deed, Adam and Eve, in the garden because of sin, and sin has reigned ever since. Satan has held on to that title deed, thinking in some way, shape, or form that eventually he would own it all. He's completely wrong. The blood of the Lamb is sufficient to reclaim that title deed. However, however... Sin finds its fullness, its fullness. And it eventually does. This is what happens in chapter 6. Man's sin, man's desire, man's pleasure-seeking, man's selfishness, all that goes into that sin nature begins to come back on mankind in chapter 6. So as Jesus opens up these seven seals, these judgments are not so much God's judgment on man as the judgment of sin itself finding its culmination. Numbers chapter 32 verse 23 tells us, Be sure your sin will find you out. 
Your sin will find you out. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 17. God says, Have you not done this to yourself? By your forsaking the Lord your God when He led you in the way. He says, Your own wickedness will correct you. And your apostasies will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. And the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord the God of hosts. This is not God's punishment. It's the consequence of our choices, of humanity's choices. Now, thankfully, praise the Lord that our choices have been washed away, have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. That we don't bear the judgment that we deserve because of Jesus' death on the cross. Paul says in Colossians 2.13, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Listen to that language. Paul is saying, I mean, this, this is stunning theology. It is not just God who judges. It's not just the wrath of God that is poured out on mankind. Sin itself judges. Our decisions, our choices themselves bring about consequence that have to be paid for one way or another. And Paul says wonderfully, Jesus took care of those. Jesus bore the brunt of all those consequences of our sins, having nailed it to the cross. But the alternative choice to what Jesus did for us at Calvary is to reject the cross. And when we reject the cross, when we reject the grace of God, we are accepting the full weight of the consequence of our sin. It will come back against us. James says in chapter 1 verse 14, Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then lust, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth, forth death. This is not God's desire for any of us. It's not what God wants for people. People have this picture of God sitting up on a cloud on high, chucking lightning bolts at humanity, squishing people when He's angry with them, sending pain and problems and sorrows into our life. This is not God. This is not what God wants for us. God doesn't sit up there and say, because you've been bad this week, I'm going to plague you with some kind of disease. I'm going to give you some kind of broken relationship, and that'll teach you. That's not our Father. That is not the merciful God of the heavens. But the reality is, and he says it over and over in Scripture, is as we sin, we end up suffering. Suffering the consequence of our sin. Our own sin comes back to bite us. Well, Rick, are you saying that someone who has cancer has it because they sinned? No. But I am saying this. I believe cancer is in the world because of sin. I believe that all debilitating diseases are in the world because of sin. Not necessarily the person who has the disease, but sin in its nature throughout the history is a corrupting force in the world and has brought about corruption, and therefore we have these diseases. It ultimately all can be drawn back to the consequence of sin. Be sure your sin will find you out. But God doesn't want our sin to find us out. What God wants to do is blot away, is take away, remove completely all of that consequence of sin. That's what he poured out on Jesus. That's what Jesus bore at Calvary. But don't miss this. The world's sin is destined to come back and bite it. And we need to know this because chapter 6 is all about the reckoning of the culmination of humanity's massive historical sin debt. Before we get into the tribulation, one last thing. Hear this. 
as we begin reading about these judgments and these horrible things happening on the earth, it all begins as consequence of sin. And during the tribulation, you'll see over and over, even while this wrath is being poured out and all these traumatic, terrifying things are happening, God is still pulling out all the stops to save people. That was eye-opening to me. Before I really understood, before I really studied the book of Revelation, I always thought, wow, if this tribulation thing is true, it just... I mean, I guess God, people just don't have any chance at that point. No, the mercy of God continues to flow straight through the tribulation. He's still pouring out His grace. He's still saying, grab my hand, take hold, I can still save you. Yeah, you missed the rapture, but I still want you to be with me through all eternity. And over and over He gives mankind opportunity, but mankind doesn't want it. We don't want it. I say we collectively. We won't be here. I hope you're not here. I won't be here. Revelation chapter 6 verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, as with a voice of thunder, Come! I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering in the conquer. And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. And when he broke the third seal, the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, I looked and behold a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts for a barley, or three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. And when the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come! I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Verse 9, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe. And they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, to be killed, even as they had been, would also be completed. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us! And hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Intense. Man, the drama. I mean, this is action at its best. Some of you may have even seen those posters of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. People trying to figure out what exactly all of this means. And it's very intense and it continues to go on in intensity from here. Now you need to understand as we get deeper into Revelation, things speed up. Things will 
speed up and, and will develop a greater and greater intensity. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Remember John wrote this. He said it's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. The word soon is that phrase in taxi. In taxi, which doesn't just mean soon, it's better translated which must quickly or take place with rapidity or with increasing speed. In taxi, like the word tachometer that we watch and as our tachometer goes up, we're going faster. That's what in taxi means. These are the things which as they take place, will take place faster and faster and faster. What does that mean? Time-wise, check this out. Consider this. Chapters 2 and 3. The church age covers a period of 2,000 years. Chapter 6 alone covers the entire first three and a half years of the tribulation. You have just read the entire first half of the tribulation in that one chapter. As the seals on earth's title deed are broken and the deed itself is reclaimed, there now comes a reckoning for sin. But what does all this mean? Let's break it down. Verse 1 again. When the Lamb had broken one of the seven seals, and notice every time who it is breaking the seals. It's the Lamb. The Lamb has authority. The Lamb has control over what's happening when each seal is broken. So when he had broken the first of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures, that is those four cherubim, remember circling or singing and praising around the throne, one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come, I looked and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering, and to conquer. Now keep in mind, this is the first thing that happens on earth after the church is caught up to heaven. But you need to understand, what happens here in chapter 6 is not brought about by the rapture. People have been asked the question, I've even asked the question before, what, is, what kicks off the tribulation? What is it that starts that tribulation period? And some have said, oh, it's the rapture of the church. No, it's not. It's not. What starts the tribulation, Daniel chapter 9 tells us, is when Israel signs a covenant with a false man of peace. That man we know of biblically as Antichrist. That man who, he won't wear a shirt that says Antichrist on it. You know, he's not going to have a pitchfork for a tail and he's not going to have little horns where people know he's Antichrist. But this man of peace, also called in the Bible the man of lawlessness or the son of perdition, this man of peace will come on the scene. And the moment that Israel signs a covenant of peace, a seven-year covenant of peace, the tribulation begins. Interesting that the first rider out is a rider on a white horse, given a bow, a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Who is this rider? Who is this who goes out? Some have said Jesus himself. After all, chapter 19, Jesus comes out riding on a white horse. And here's a rider on the white horse. Isn't that Jesus? No, it's not. It's not. It is anti-Christ. It is one who would put himself in the place of Christ. It's one who is trying to look like Christ, but it is not Christ. This is not the same rider as in Revelation 19. It is a deception. Four things to notice. Number one, he holds a bow. This rider on the white horse holds a bow. But this is not like a bow and arrow. The bow that he holds is more like a rainbow. The first time this word is used in the Bible, go back to Genesis chapter 9. I want to flip back there just for a moment. Genesis chapter 9. Great thing about going from Revelation to Genesis is it's about the easiest book in the Bible to find when you're in Revelation. 
with the exception of maybe Jude. Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. Now watch this, it's important to understand this imagery. John, as he's writing, remember he's writing to Christians in the first century. And the language he's using is language for not just Christians, but Hebrew Christians in many cases. Jewish people who have been converted to Christ who understood the things of the Old Testament. There is so much Old Testament imagery. By some counts, over 700 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And so as John writes, he's using language, and Jesus is inspiring him to use language that a Jewish believer in Christ would understand. Watch this. Genesis chapter 9, verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. My covenant, he says. And every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark and every beast of the earth, I establish again my covenant with you. All flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. This is the sign of the covenant. Listen, verse 12. This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow, my bow in the cloud. My bow. It's first mention of the word bow in the Bible. And it shall be for me a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. God says, here, I'm going to give you a covenant. What was this covenant? I will not destroy the world by water ever again. And what was the bow? The bow was the proof of the covenant. I still tell my children this today. I tell them if you're out and it happens to be a half sunny day and partially raining and you see the big rainbow in the sky, God is still reminding us of his covenant. He's still saying, remember back there in the days of Noah? I said I'm going to give you a rainbow. That is a sign. That's my promise, my guarantee. I will never flood the world with water again. That will not happen. It's God's covenant. When you see the rainbow, it's unfortunate the homosexual community has taken the rainbow for themselves. But I like the t-shirt that Ashley was talking about having made that just has a big pretty rainbow on it and says, I'm not gay, I just like rainbows. You know? God is the one who originated the rainbow, not the homosexual community. And the rainbow for the Lord was proof of His covenant, proof of His promise. So when we get back to Revelation chapter 6 and we see this rider on the white horse, he's got a bow, but it's not a bow and arrow. There are no arrows mentioned. It's a bow. It is a sign of covenant. What does Antichrist sign with Israel that kicks off the tribulation? A covenant. A covenant. Daniel chapter 9 verse 27. Let me just read this to you. He will make a firm covenant, speaking of Antichrist, he'll make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That word week is not week, it's literally heptad for one seven, one period of seven, for seven years. That's very well explained in the book of Revelation as we go on. But in the middle of the week, that would be three and a half years, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and to grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. It's called the abomination of desolation. We'll talk about that more as we get closer to it. But the bow then, the bow in Revelation 6, that the rider on the white horse has, it is a sign, an emblem of covenant. And Antichrist will kick off the tribulation by signing this seven-year covenant. Let me just say this to you all. In the world in which we live, and especially among Christians, unless the covenant is of God, be very careful. 
Unless the covenant is of God, be careful. And I say this because we live in a time where church membership, and especially de- you know, defining myself by this group of believers or by that group of believers or being signed up with this group of believers, it seems to be very important in the church. And yet all it does ultimately is cause division as opposed to encouraging fellowship between churches. We are the same body, gang. What churches in Oak Harbor or churches in Anacortes or this little church right here in the middle are doing is the same work. It's the work of the kingdom. And the only covenant we need to be concerned with is the covenant, the new covenant of Jesus' blood that saves all of us. So be careful of covenant because it can be used negatively. And gang, the bottom line is we human beings have a hard time keeping covenant, don't we? Anybody broken a promise, say, in the last six months? I almost had to break one today. I told my son, I'm going to help you build. He got a couple of Lego toys for, for his birthday, and I was going to help him build them. And we got it done. I mean, literally, last night, I'm putting Pikachu's nose on. Okay, got to go. And I came running over here. We make promises all the time that we can't keep. And so Jesus said this, Matthew 5:33. You've heard that the ancients were told that you shall not make false vows but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. I say to you, make no oath at all. Either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's the footstool of the seed, or by Jerusalem even, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your statement be this, yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond these is of evil. Don't make promises you don't intend to keep. Don't make covenants that you know in your human flesh you cannot keep. By the way, back in Genesis chapter 9, who is it that made the covenant? It's important to know the answer to this. It's an easy answer. Who made the covenant with Noah? God did. Did Noah make the covenant? Did he have anything really to do with the covenant? Nothing except that he was there. And he showed up, but he couldn't claim any, any side to it. He didn't enter into that covenant by doing anything himself. The Lord did all of it in the same way God made a covenant with Israel. A covenant that currently lies forgotten. But listen, it's not just a covenant of the land. It's not just a promise of return. It is a promise of redemption. God's covenant is, I will bring you back, yes, into the land, but I'm going to restore you. I'm going to redeem you. Paul said it this way. He said, indeed, all Israel will be saved. Now, that verse has been confusing for many. And if I went into it right now, it would be a major rabbit trail. Maybe I should. Will we get there later? I'll tell you this real quickly. Romans chapter 11 verse 25 I do have this verse here so let me read it to you God has not forgotten his covenant to the Jewish people to Israel listen to what Paul says I do not want you brethren to be uninformed by the way Paul says that three times in his letters and each of those three times is incredibly significant and important I don't want you to be uninformed in other words Christians you need to know this you need to understand this I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is God's promise, His covenant promise. I am going to remove Jacob's sin. 
I am going to redeem Jacob. Verse 27 of Romans 11, Paul goes on. He quotes, This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now Paul says, From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts of the, and the calling of God are irrevocable. It was so important to Paul to make sure the Gentiles understood that they had a connection to Israel. That they had a connection to the Jewish people. What is that connection? I have it here on a little bookmark that was handed to us as we were visiting several places in Israel. I love this. It says, Romans 11.18, the root supports you. Christians, Gentile believers in Christ, which is all of us except Frank here tonight, I think. Gang, the root supports you. We would not be here studying the Bible if not for Israel. We would not have our redemption in Jesus if not for the Jewish people. It was through Israel Jesus came into the world. It's because of Israel we have the scriptures. The entire early church, the first century church, was all Jews. It took them a while to figure out that they were the root that was going to support the the fullness of the Gentiles. And we live in a time where the fullness of the Gentiles, at least right now, is still coming in. When that time is complete, God will at that point pull out Jews and Gentiles, those who make up the church. And then he will turn his attention completely back on Israel and their redemption and restoration. What about that quote, Rick, that all Israel will be saved? How is that possible? Does that mean that someone who's Jewish just gets to be saved? If you happen to be an Israeli today, does that mean you're automatically saved? Absolutely not. Let me put it this way. A Jew has no more opportunity of being saved by the Lord God than a Muslim does unless they believe in Jesus Christ. So how can Paul say all Israel will be saved? Now I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but there is a point in the Revelation study where we'll see this. The Bible tells us that at one point in the tribulation period, two-thirds of all Jews living on planet Earth will be killed. They'll die. They will not make it through the tribulation. Two-thirds. Only one-third of Jewish people will make it to the end of the tribulation. But guess what? At that point, one-third of what was Israel, the beginning of the tribulation, is now left. That is all of Israel alive on planet Earth. At the end of the tribulation period, all of Israel will be saved. All of that one-third that make it through. The other two-thirds that don't will not be saved. Because then, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, it doesn't matter. There is only one way to find salvation, and that is through the name of Jesus Christ. But that one-third of Israel will find salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. We'll accept Him. We'll believe in Him. The tribulation period, again, it is for the Jewish people. And it's God's way of shaking up and waking up the Hebrews. And so he's going to do that. So Antichrist comes with a bow, a covenant. Antichrist also, this rider on the white horse, notice that he wears a crown. That's the second thing to notice. A crown was given to him. Now there are two designations of the word crown in the New Testament. Two different ways a crown is referred to. Stephanos or diadema. Stephanos or diadema. Stephanos is the word used here. It's the specific crown given to this rider on the white horse. What's the difference between Stephanos and diadema? Stephanos is a chapelle or a wreath of leaves. So you would see a, uh, an Olympic runner just win the games, come up onto the, the bema seat, the platform, and will be handed the Stephanos, that wreath of leaves. It's different than the diadema 
which is a permanent crown. A permanent crown, a golden crown, a solid crown that lasts. The Stephanos wilts and fades. This rider is wearing a crown that will wilt and fade and die. It is not permanent. The crown in chapter 6, verse 2 is Stephanos. Look ahead to the rider in chapter 19, which is Jesus. Tells us in chapter 19, verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Diadema. On his head is the golden crown, the crown that lasts, the crown that is permanent. Then the Bible tells us he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Jesus, the Christ, wears a permanent crown. Antichrist will come on the scene with a temporary crown. So he has a bow, he wears a crown, that Stephanos, that wreath of leaves. Number three, Antichrist, this white rider, he rides to conquer. The purpose of his writing is laid out very clearly. He writes to conquer. Verse 2 tells us he comes conquering and to conquer. And this speaks of the intentions of Antichrist, which is not peace at all. Although the world will think, will see, that this great orator, this great man of peace, they're going to think he's the one who's going to bring peace finally to the Middle East. He's the one that's going to bring peace to the world. But his objection, gang, his objective, sorry, will be domination. That's what he's about. Daniel chapter 8 verse 24 gives us this insight. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power, Satan's. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. The indication is there through witchcraft. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart. He will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. In other words, he's going to be wiped out and not by a human. He's going to be taken out by the real Christ. And what did Jesus say about Antichrist? John chapter 5 verse 41, Jesus said, I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. However, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Antichrist is going to come in his own name. He's going to come with that bow, that covenant of peace. He's going to come with that false crown. He's going to come riding to conquer. Although he will present himself as a man of peace, he is a man of war. He's a man of war. One more thing to notice about this first of the four horsemen. He rides with a very revealing posse. He rides with a revealing posse. For riding right behind this rider on the white horse comes war and famine and death and martyrdom and terror. This is the purpose of this rider on the white horse. He is Antichrist and he comes conquering and to conquer. Skip ahead to chapter 19 real quickly. Chapter 19 and verse 11. Look at the contrast between the writer we just looked at and the writer who is Jesus in chapter 19, verse 11. John's writing, he says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Yes, Jesus will come to wage war, but in righteousness. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems or crowns. 
and he has a name written on himself which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Who are those armies? It's you. It's me. We'll get there. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. Then he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he who treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe, verse 16, and on his thigh he has a new name written, or a name written, sorry, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds which fly amid heaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God. We'll stop there in 19. It gets incredible, amazing, when Jesus returns in all his glory. But the contrast is awesome. You've got this puny little rider on the white horse with his little crown falling apart and, and his little covenant that he's going to violate and all the riders behind him that are all about death and despair and destruction. And then you've got Jesus coming in his glory. Two riders, one is Christ, the other is anti-Christ. 